0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Plot Devices, uh, the movie and film podcast hosted by a couple of people that you may or may not know. I don't know who's listening to this, but I hope you're friendly and we welcome you here. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside uh, Samantha Corvaya and Noah Guzman. Sam, how are you doing today?
1: Hey, all right. I'm doing really well. I'm glad we're recording our second ever episode. It's super exciting. And we do love friendlies. Send all the friendlies here.
2: <laughs> and, uh, Noah, how are you today? What's going on? I'm right there with you, team. We are on episode two. This snowball is is going from a little tiny pebble to like a nice tennis ball now. And as we keep going, you know I'm going to be referencing larger and larger just spheres for us to snowball into. Um, I cannot wait until we are the size of the Rock of Gibraltar. Shameless plug for Apex Legends. I
1: yes, I'm proud of that plug. I was going to say,
0: <laughs> if we started as a pebble and we become a tennis ball, what is like the size progression of that? What's
1: the trajectory? I think <laughs> if we pebble into a rock, but neither here nor there, I'm not a geologist. These are the questions that leave us, you know, like uh, awake at night.
2: <laughs> we're not answering that on this podcast, that's the other podcast, so for now, what are we talking about?
0: Go listen to our side project, uh, Rock Devices, for all of that. <laughs> that's so bad, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Anyways, let's get okay. started with our first story for today. Uh, as you all know, hopefully if you are if you know Marvel fans out there, uh, Eternals is still set to come out this year. It's going to be the third Marvel project this year. And we have gotten what is supposed to be our final trailer for the project. I just dropped the other day. Uh, based on the characters created by Jack Kirby, the film will center on a family of immortal beings who reunite after thousands of years to save Earth from a new threat. The film will be directed and co written by Nomad Land and the writer director, uh, Chloe Zhao, who is, I mentioned, uh, co writing it already, uh, and will feature an ensemble cast that is set to include the likes of Richard Madden, Jemma Chan. Uh, Kamel Nanjiani in uh, Shimino Jolie, and is set for a theatrical release as well on November 5th. Noah, I want to get your thoughts first. Uh, what have been your expectations for Eternals going into this? Because it has been kind of, you know, the pro- it's been the Guardians of this year, the one that no one really knows. So what have been your experiences going into this, and what did you think of this most recent trailer?
2: Yeah, um, going into this, I was still riding the hype train of that cast being announced at um, one of the conferences, I can't remember which one, but as soon as we saw all of these um, big, big names, you know, coming out of Game of Thrones, uh, seeing that uh, Kit Harrington was going to be part of the Eternals team, um, like you said, James Madden uh, or Robert Madden, I'm sorry, um, Angelina Jolie, longtime fan of Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek leading the team of the Eternals. Like, I think these were new projects, uh, Kumail, uh, these were new projects for the actors that I was familiar with. Um I want to get his name now. He is the actor from uh Train to Busan. And oh, Don, Lee. Don Lee, I'll be very excited to see all of them together um and sharing this responsibility of being immortal on Earth. Uh, we have a lot of questions of how this fits into the MCU. And right from the first trailer, we just we don't yet understand. Um, their reason for being and also their reason for being uninvolved with all the stuff that we've come to know in the MCU. So uh, initially, I think uh, everybody has questions, uh, not only of what are they, because I have people approaching me saying, so so who are the Eternals? Like, like what's even going on here? And I do my best to just like piece together some kind of explanation that I half know. Um, but when this last trailer dropped, I think everybody is going to get excited again because this looks like Marvel uh, action delivering like hard punches 10 out of 10 Um, when I see Superman laser eyes come out of uh, Robert Madden, I'm, I want to know, like, what is the stretch of the, of the power that the Eternals have? And then especially when they're together, are we talking Voltron? Like, are they hopping on and becoming one giant eternal being? Um, We definitely get sneak uh, like little screenshots. um, I'm sorry, little snippets of what the threat is going to be in this, in this movie so we see some kind of like galactic figure that I immediately want to go out back and research you know watch those youtube videos that pick it apart minute by minute um this trailer is going to pique a lot of people's interest uh, especially those who weren't familiar with the eternals before or weren't feeling like the the calmness of the first trailer uh this trailer is meant to excite you kind of introduce you to some of the drama and i think it's perfect for what a final trailer, trailer needs to be sam
1: Yeah, I feel like the thing I'm most looking forward to in this movie is seeing Chloe Zhao's expertise in a a Marvel's movie. Uh, And so then I'm just really excited to see how that plays out because in the trailer, you could already see it has her her special touch with like the, the natural backgrounds, a lot of really pretty landscapes, something about the color scheme, too. It just screams like a Chloe Town movie, which feels um, reminiscent of Nomadland, which, of course, was our Academy Award winner um, last year. So that was really exciting. Um, So I'm excited to see what she'll do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe here. And thanks for bringing up um, the Train of Us actor. I completely forgot that he was also involved in that. And he was such a powerful character in that film that I, I wanted to see more of him. So I'm glad that he'll be in it but um yeah it's just such a stacked cast and for someone who doesn't know much about the comic side of things i'm just really excited to see more of their power showcase because it's like uh you know forgive me i don't know in the moment which one could manipulate energy i think that's kingo i think that's uh, camilla jianni's um character but like i saw him do like a finger gun at one point and he shot out energy out of his fingers and it's like okay i was wondering how he manipulates energy because that's what his general like character biography says it's like oh yeah you can, can manipulate energy and i'm like i have no idea what that means and so that was just exciting to see how those powers play out at least in this trailer um for someone who doesn't know much about the comic book historical context for these guys but yeah why were they not involved in the snap can't wait to hear their reasons behind that that will be so interesting to me i feel like
0: all of us are connected into this in some way of just having the popcorn behind us and going so are you during the uh, the flip? That's uh, a <laughs> feel huh? I thought Thanos much. was. I thought Thanos was one of you. I thought this was a thing. Um, yeah, I love this trailer. I love it in the same vein that I love some of the early Captain Marvel stuff of just you know indie directors coming in and bringing you know indie pacing and indie stylistic sensibilities to the MCU. I love, and actually, this is the same cinematographer, Ben Davis. So who knew? um and actually also as i found out from this trailer uh ramin jawadi who composed the score for the uh, first iron man movie all the way back in 2008 he's come back to the mcu to do the music for this which i think is a very cool little touch um but yeah i love what i saw in game of thrones he also did game of thrones i thought it was appropriate because we're talking marvel but yes he also did game of thrones which i guess is a little important we got Um, kit harrington and richard madden too
2: oh Um, what am i saying of course
0: and one day i will watch game of thrones and we'll know (gasps) We've all seen Nomadland. Like one thing we know about Chloe Zhao is she is a pacing master. She knows exactly how she knows exactly how to you know pace out scenes in such a way that you are not only vibing with the characters but you are understanding them and their world in the same place, and it somehow feels completely natural. However long the project is, I admit I haven't seen the writer yet, so I'm only basing this on Nomadland. I will see it eventually. Um, but I love her as a choice for this. The cast is stacked. I cannot wait to see Lauren Ridloff in this as one of the first, you know, deaf superheroes. Brian Tyree Henry is going to be playing one of the first LGBT, uh, LGBTQ characters, prominently in the MCU. Um, and just Angelina Jolie in a Marvel movie is an awesome touch. Like, I can't wait to see that. The only experience I have with the Terminals in the comics is I read the Neil Gaiman run years ago, and that was it. I know they have a current run of the comics, as hopefully you're listening to this. Uh, go check it out. I hear it's pretty good. Uh, But yeah, this looks fantastic. I can't wait for this. I just hope that it keeps that November release date, because again, in this day and age, everything shifts around. But if it does, I cannot wait for this. Let's move on then to our follow-up story. This is a significant one. For those of you following Jeopardy! uh, in the wake of Alex Trebek's death, there has been a whole momentum in search to find, you know, the new permanent host. A couple yeah, about a week ago now, we got the confirmation That Mike Richards, who has been an executive producer of the show for about a year, and Mayim Bialik, of course, best known for The Big Bang Theory, for her podcasting work, for, you know, a bunch of other things. They were going to be acting as pseudo co-hosts for the show. Mayim Bialik was going to be tackling the primetime specials, and Richards going to be serving as sort of the de facto host. That changed this week. Uh, This comes in a report from The Ringer detailing past comments Richards made on his podcast, The Random Show, when he was working on The Price is Right. Uh, in it, he disparages Jews, women, other minorities, says a lot of toxic stuff. Go read the article. It's very well detailed. Needless to say, this sparked a lawsuit from the Anti-Defamation League for misrepresentation mis- mis- of mis- 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 character. And now we have the news that just this week, Richards has announced that he is stepping down as host. He had a whole you know, statement to the cast and crew. Uh, Richards will, however, continue to serve as the show's executive producer and has already taped several episodes as host, which will begin airing on September 13th. There are guest hosts that are being vetted for the upcoming season, and co-host Mayim Bialik is currently still set to host those primetime specials as previously indicated, but Richards will no longer serve as the main host. I was not excited about this even before I heard all the allegations, but I will simply say that I do not think Richards was the right guy for this. And if you read the Ringer article, there are several executives who will go on and say like, no, I don't know why we hired him. Like he He basically had the things that you needed to say But one executive goes on to say, like, he was the least charismatic person in the room. Another says he was, like, the least qualified person they interviewed. And actually, uh, I saw a couple of people online suggesting, like, oh, why don't they just keep the rotating guest hosts? Because even though ratings have dropped significantly in the wake of Trebek's death, especially nowadays when people are watching less and less network television. So if you have anything that can garner that kind of frequent spike, and it might be guest hosting, and you're providing people with a different thing each week, why not? And there's no reason you can't bring those guest hosts back in the wake of just, you know, I know it says in the article, but, you know, standard scrawny white guy as your you know new host again in the history of network television. So I am, you know, slightly relieved to hear about this. I hope that the people who have been abused by him get reparations for this. Uh, no, I want to turn it to you first. Uh, are you a Jeopardy fan at all? What did you hear when you heard this news? And uh, break this down for us.
2: I am a in the other room jeopardy jeopardy fan i'm listening to it going on i'm like oh let me step in let me try and guess let me let me answer a couple of these um but actually you know i grew up i think a lot of the game show that was watched in my household was like family feud um, but that's not to say that i'm not familiar with jeopardy uh this was definitely a um I, I think it held something special for the host because of the decades that they were on the show alex trebek um, when they announced that he had passed um I felt that sometimes uh, the legacy of a, the legacy of success can sometimes like fiddle down with the legend. Um, but that's not happening in this case. We're having uh, somebody step in and they're kind of going through the motions of finding the right fit. Is this, uh, real quick, is this available on any uh, streaming network?
0: I don't think, past seasons are available on Netflix. I know that. I don't know how often they update it. Past
1: seasons, live, I'm not
0: sure
2: about. I'm going to use this little tool called Just Watch, and I'm going to see if it's available anywhere.
0: This is the part of the show we call, where is it streaming? Where is it streaming? <laughs> <Ella>? <laughs> there you go.
2: Okay. Just Watch shows that it is actually, woo 66 seasons. Okay. Uh-huh. It's oh, a, lot. a lot. <laughs> um, and no streaming offers. Okay. Um, I'm going to start. This is a clear example of some of these, uh, the classic daytime game shows withstanding the test of time. Um, I'm waiting to see if either show uh, or either daytime like uh, game show is going to attach themselves to a streaming service um, with such large and major deals being made for other shows that have been on for decades. Uh, when it comes to game shows, I want to see if they can get creative with a deal and actually sign. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a Peacock deal because that actually sounds like it could be news. Um, but I think this, uh, this is going to show us like where the future of some of these game shows is going to, is going to lie. Uh, I definitely think that the demographic of watching these is more of the older households who haven't yet became accustomed to all of the streaming services that are available from, from where I stand. I see it as, um, these, these moves are going to become more and more important, um, as they become closer to connecting with a streaming service, but if they're not, I don't think that these will live long in the spotlight because of other things that are going on. It's hard for them to keep up.
0: I do want to move on to Sam, but I do want to get your comment on this first because obviously there has been the biggest push behind LeVar Burton. Should they just go and get LeVar Burton or should they do what I've been hearing and having just continuous guest hosts for the time being?
2: If you're asking me, I think the guest host thing is the best route. I think it keeps the spirit of jeopardy very fun and it actually it actually keeps conversation i think new um every time they bring on a new guest because we know content is king and if somebody was having a new discussion about a jeopardy host um like they would like an s n l host, that would be uh something that could spark the show again.
0: That's actually a really good comparison. I hadn't thought of that Sam uh your thoughts on all of this?
1: Yeah, the, it's funny, I feel like you guys are thinking in the uh, Academy Awards mindset because they thought the same thing with that one year at the Oscars to rotate all the different hosts throughout the night. But, I mean, it made things interesting. And, um, I I think that could absolutely work for Jeopardy, uh, personally in my household, um, just to go back to the initial question of if you're a fan or not, very casual fan. I honestly love Jeopardy so much. I'm aware of it. I'm aware that you answer in a question. And I just, I, um, I know that it's like every trivia lover's dream, you know, to be on the show. Uh, for me personally, uh, our family was more of a wheel of fortune kind of word family, but you know, it's just the fact that game shows, uh, are so, prevalent in you know like media for years especially with 66 seasons of jeopardy it's just it's crazy you know um but i love to see it especially when you see different hosts that could potentially be rotated out but having said all that i know that there were also reports of um, uh, alex trebek mentioning that if he were ever to retire and i believe this interview was before he found out that he had cancer um somebody asked him from tmz harvey i believe it was uh, asked him If you were to retire, who would you want to replace you? And he actually mentioned Laura Coates, who is, I believe, an analyst with CNN. And so I think that that's really interesting that um, that video is resurfacing on social media um, because – she wasn't even given an opportunity to audition in that rotating list of guests. And we even had like a wide variety of different people who auditioned. I mean, kind of like Brandon already said it, we had anybody from like LeVar Burton to Robin Roberts, George Stephanopoulos and and so many other different people, Anderson Cooper too. So, you know, the, it was a really competitive field in my opinion. Um, but I, I think it would be really interesting to see her, uh, and give her a chance too, especially since she was specifically shouted out by Alex Trebek. And I just, you know, you could only wonder what he, he would be thinking if he was still alive, just to see all this happening. And when I first heard about the Mike Richards announcement, I thought it was just very different. I don't know off. It, it just kind of felt like, what was the point of doing the whole audition process? If you're just going to make yourself the host anyway. Cause I know that um, they auditioned Mayim Bialik in there from Big Bang Theory. And she ended up being like, you know, the co-host in rotation with Mike Richards, but it's just, it it just still doesn't feel right that as the executive producer and most people said he wasn't that charismatic, charismatic to begin with, be the host. It just, it felt very fishy to me. It felt like invalidated everybody else's chance to be the host for Jeopardy. So those are just my initial thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there was definitely some foregone conclusion in this. And considering how recently Richards has been appointed as executive producer on this and how much time he had to get involved with Sony executives on that, I, it, it seems fishy at the very best. And I'll leave it at that. Um, on a significantly lighter note than that, we're getting Birds of Prey spinoffs. And I'm very excited. And Noah is very excited too, if you're not watching the video. Um, <laughs> if we do video, that's a whole nother thing. Um, The Hollywood Reporter has confirmed that a Birds of Prey spinoff featuring Journey Smollett's Black Canary is indeed in development in HBO Max. This was rumored for a while that we were going to be getting more Birds of Prey stuff in that universe that, you know, Cassandra Cain might be popping up and things like that. Now we know the Black Canary is going to be the one they're going to be focused on, and it's going to be helmed by misha green best known as the showrunner of the hit hbo miniseries lovecraft country which unfortunately just got canceled for season two uh but there's some you know season two things going out there go check that out it might get renewed we don't know yet uh green is not set to direct uh, black canary as of yet but she is set to make her directorial debut at least some, at least of right now next year on the tomb raider sequel starring alicia mccander which i cannot wait for um and also in it is also unconfirmed whether or not Birds of Prey director Kathy Yan is involved in any way. We would have to assume as a producer of some capacity, as well as, you know, Charles Roven and most of the other DCEU heads. Uh, in the comics, if you're not familiar, uh, or at least in the film context, Black Canary is Dinah Lance. She is a nightclub singer who also acts as a vigilante with the power of supersonic screams, a la Marvel's Black Bolt. Uh, She has a famed history with Green Arrow as a romantic relationship. It's a whole thing in the comics. It's wonderful. Uh, And Black Canary is also set to join uh, Leslie Grace's Batgirl and Zola Meridueña's uh, Blue Beetle as the latest DCU projects that are going straight to HBO Max. This has been kind of a thing for a while of wondering what's going to go to theaters, what's going to HBO Max this is the latest to be determined as, at least of right now, solely for streaming. Actually, Noah, you reviewed Birds of
2: Prey, didn't you? I did review Birds of Prey, yes. Okay,
0: then I want to start with you. Uh, what were your thoughts on uh, Journey Smollett's performance and that, and are you excited for a spinoff with Misha Green attached?
2: Uh, yes, uh, I'm reading that Kathy Yan will be involved as well, um, and seeing that Birds of Prey, um, or seeing that I watched Birds of Prey, um, you know, Harley's second iteration is it the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Um, I'm happy to, I'm hoping that the Black Canary title will just be Black Canary. Um, but I love Journey Smollett. Having just seen or having watched Birds of Prey and then seeing her again in Lovecraft Country, um, immediate, immediate fan. Uh I think in Birds of Prey, you had... Uh, a lot of the fun in Harley Quinn that we didn't get to experience in Suicide Squad. Um, and that's like, that's like the, the top statement is like, you were just having fun with that movie and it'd be an introduction into uh, Journey it's Black Canary, um, was beautifully done. You got like a, a, just a nice, uh, tease at the end of the potential of her power. So, um, seeing her, I guess, withhold that strength i want to know you know what is her origin and how does she operate because um definitely a a character that can stand one-on-one against harley um i believe she even saves her in birds of prey and uh knowing that misha green will be attached um has me equally as excited uh because of her work in lovecraft country she's sharing things on social media about what season two was going to involve um and that's just a short little Side note on Lovecraft Country season two being canceled and me being devastated when it comes to Black Canary. Uh, I have not read the comics. I'm not so, so totally familiar with her character, but I've played the hell out of Injustice, too. And Black Canary is a fighter who I'm like, OK, going against somebody who's totally going to counter whatever move I throw at him. I'm already, um, I love Joni Smollett. I think that uh, it's a perfect character to dive into another solo movie. Um, and she's got, she's got that, that kind of um, she's, she's got that kind of star power where uh, she's definitely going to dominate the screen uh, in whatever we see her in, in the future, because of Lovecraft Country's cancellation. Um, I'll be, I'll be right behind whatever project that she's going to be a part of. And so if Black Canary's next, I'm talking all things Black Canary for the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I always loved Black Canary from the from DC comics and in that universe. Just because there was something about that power for me that I thought was so cool. I, I loved it way more than like Superman or or Wonder Woman. To be honest, I just always liked. The character and so like similar to noah i actually have the most experience with black canary and injustice video games as well as um actually the cw universe as well like the tv series um and so i i always appreciate any form of the character whenever she's around and especially including the birds of prey version for for black canary and so i just find it really exciting that dc's delving into these different characters who are long overdue for solo stories like Blue Beetle and um, Canary herself. So I just, I can't wait to see what these will look like in the future. And especially for HBO Max, it's a good win for them. Um, So, you know, my, my thoughts are pretty short and sweet on it. I'm just, I'm just really excited about it and I can't wait to see it. Yeah.
0: I've been a fan of Journey Smollett since uh, the great debaters probably And, and Birds of Prey. Honestly, some of the best scenes in that movie are just the little moments between her and Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. Like, they have such a fun, weird, odd couple dynamic that I don't think gets talked about as much. And I really just enjoyed every second of it. And, like, if you've seen Suicide Squad, there's a little hint of Black Canary in there with Savant. Like, apparently that might be a thing uh, that I've heard a lot of people talking about on Twitter. But uh, I love the idea of Misha Green being attached to this. I'm sad for Lovecraft Country fans. I never watched it just because I'm not a horror guy, but I know that it has you know, transcended horror to a lot of people, that it's become this you know, cultural phenomenon to a degree, and I'm sad that that doesn't get to continue. But I am happy that someone like Misha Green, who is a woman of color and who has developed this amazing thing, gets to go on and go do more amazing things. Uh, and I, I cannot wait for her take on Team Raider. That sounds awesome. But I will say, just as we're uh, running low on time, that uh, I've seen this pointed out by a couple of people online, and I want to bring this up, that, you know, as far as, you know, theatrical releases, we're getting characters like Shazam and Wonder Woman and, you know, all these things. And then when you look to HBO Max, a lot of characters and actors of color are being, quote unquote, relegated to the streaming service as, you know, Warner Brothers is looking to their, uh, looking to their other properties. And I just want to get your guys' take on that real quick. Like, is this a bad move to just make your project streaming exclusive even in a time of pandemic, even when they may not come out for another two or three years?
1: I think that it's heavily dependent on contracts that they have with the cast and crew. And I think that that's what could make that huge difference. You know, like, I, I know that there might be a factor in there with, going straight to a streaming service, you might not get as much revenue put towards these things or put budgets towards these projects as well. And so I I honestly have not researched what that looks like just yet, like, you know, the the production value of each of these. And so I I would feel more comfortable after I like researched that for a bit. Just what I know off the top of my head, though, I I don't see any problem with it. And to be honest, I honestly didn't even make that connection between uh, people of, of color um, being sent straight to the streaming service, like, you know, like characters that are played by uh, diverse people. Uh, I didn't I didn't really make that connection until this moment. So that's it's fascinating, to be honest. <laughs>
0: it, and also directed by, because Blue Beetle is being directed by a Hispanic man, a black, black Girl is being directed by two Middle Eastern men. So there's mm-hmm. that connection in there as well. Uh, no, I mean,
2: yeah. Um, I think that it's very important to introduce these characters, especially when they're being, especially when they're being represented by a person of color or somebody from a um, underrepresented community. It's definitely, I think, priority to get the content out there. I want to say that when it comes to uh, these diverse characters, and especially when they're being represented by un- underserved communities um, or underrepresentative communities, uh, you definitely want to get that content delivered to the audiences as fast as possible. Sometimes I think uh, theaters aren't the way to do that when it comes to niche characters uh, who are not well known. Even when it came to Birds of Prey, we know the story of that movie being um, less successful because of the confusion at the box office of what is Birds of Prey? Like, I've never even heard of this title. Um, And they were considering just dropping that, just naming it uh, Harley Quinn, because that's who the character, that's what the story is focusing on. Um, So I think that every character and every represent pool needs to show up in theaters, just as any other film would, especially when they're being helmed by those same diverse communities um, behind the camera. Um, The decision to deliver it straight to HBO Max, I would hope just means that they're just pouring so much effort into it that they are going to make it really for a niche audience and not try and make a widespread um, you know, widespread uh, appeal to the masses. I want to see something that is true to the comics um, and something that maybe not everybody will enjoy, but you'll enjoy if you've, if you've stood with these characters, if you're familiar with their universe and you can respect their portrayal. That's how I feel.
0: Totally. And I, I think that's totally very, for me, and I'll just, be you to know, wrap this up real quick. I think the only way that you get more Black Panthers and that you get more movies like that that become representation icons for communities is to present them to larger audiences. That being said, I also totally understand the idea of well, one, these aren't you know super well known characters, of which I would disagree. I think Black Canary is very well known, but I get the idea. And number two, that if you're building up HBO Max as you are, you need an amount. That's what streaming services are doing. They're building up content libraries. And if you're bringing you know superhero films like you know Temple Temple uh, Blockbusters to your uh, to your streaming service, it will help in that vein. So I completely understand that, but I think you're only going to get progress if you make that progress well-known and you make people focus on that. The Birds of Prey marketing, that was a thing, and they were mistaken on that, and we can absolutely acknowledge that. But I I think if they're going to – if they want to take chances on this, they should absolutely be willing to bring it, if not just day-in-and-day-out release, because it's been working for them with HBO Max. Like Mortal Kombat did good numbers. Godzilla vs. Kong did good numbers. This has proven – that you can do this with the big temple movies and it can work. So I'm a little confused. I wish they would, but I'm not the most angry if they don't. All right, let's hop into our next story for today. Uh, we're going to be talking later today about the uh, Protege, which is Martin Campbell's next movie. Noah's going to be telling us about that a little bit later. But in preparation of that, Martin Campbell has been doing a you know the press circuit, all the you know Shazam about that. Uh, for The Protégé, and in that, he guested on the Collider podcast recently, where he talked about two of his, you know, pretty well-known uh, directorial efforts. If you're not familiar with Martin Campbell, he's pretty acclaimed as an action director. He did Mask of Zorro. He, well, he also did, he did both Zoros, I should say. He did Edge of Darkness. He did The Foreigner. He did Eskimo. Uh, sorry, did uh, Eskimo Neal. He's well-acclaimed as a, you know, late 90s, early 2000s action connoisseur. And when he was guesting on the Collider podcast, he talked about two of his directorial projects one of which was his 2011 version of Green Lantern, of course, notoriously starring Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively. Uh, it was one of DC's, like, big post-Dark Knight forays into superhero movies. It barely made its budget back, uh, but a lot of people have sort of held it up as somewhat of a cult classic in the comic book genre, even, you know, despite the, uh, the mismanagement. That being said, uh, Martin Campbell did actually comment on that uh, after, you know, uh, sorry, in honor of the film's 10-year anniversary, And this is what he had to say, if I can bring up the darn comments. Uh, And I encourage you to read this at Collider.com. Basically, he said, quote, the point about Green Lancer is that whereas Bond, I love Bond. I love the Bond films. I really enjoyed them. It was an event for me. I'm not a comic fan. And the truth is I should have never done the film, but I did it because I had never done a conflict film before. So I think the blame rests solely on my shoulders to a large extent. It was a big studio movie and the script was not up to par. We had Ryan Reynolds, terrific and Blake Lively. So at least those two got together. We did create something. Um, And he does talk a little about the, you know, studio interference. And he talks about, you know, kind of the script mandates that were going on there between the Sinestro character played by Mark Strong and where Warner Brothers wanted to kind of go with the franchise. Uh, he was also asked uh, in honor of uh, No Time to Die, so, uh, supposedly still coming out this year, fingers crossed, uh, he was asked if he would make a return to the Bond franchise because he previously directed GoldenEye uh, with Pierce Brosnan and he also directed the 2007 Casino Royale with uh, Daniel Craig. And he basically didn't deny it. He said, I would certainly consider it. I enjoy doing bond. And also the two producers that, that being, uh, um, oh God, I will, I will come up with the names in a second. I forget their names, but he wants to work with the producers again. So he may be making a return to bond. He may be at least interested in it. And he is at least reconciling with the fact that green lantern, you know, all these years later did not do what it did. Sam, I want to start with you. What did you think about that? And what do you think of Martin Campbell's comments of this, at least in wake of, you know, Free Guy doing very well, which we're going to talk about later, and also the film's 10-year anniversary that just passed.
1: Yeah, with Green Lantern specifically, when I first saw it, I I honestly didn't like it. I was pretty much with the majority of, like, it's it's not that great, especially because I had problems with the scripts for the most part. Um, And so... For me, I think that this is really interesting that it comes out um, at this time, these comments, because as we mentioned off air, it's interesting that he brings up Green Lantern almost like 10 years after the fact. It's like almost up to the 10 year anniversary. But, but it makes sense with Protege coming out and everything. But again, back to Green Lantern. I, I agree with this piece, um, uh, what the author mentioned, saying that they thought it was really humble that Campbell – came out with the statement, taking all the blame. I mean, that takes a lot for a director to be like, yeah, that was probably not a good idea on my part. But I mean, I, I still think that it's just, it's just interesting to hear um, that there was a different ending to, you know, what we know of today. So I do hope that someday maybe that could come out. I am not sure how that format would work out if we would get like almost like a Snyder director cut or not. Um, but in Campbell's version, uh, but it would be interesting to see. And, and that's kind of like all my thoughts on it. I, I think that it's just really interesting. He came out with the statement in general.
0: So what you're saying is you are the creator of the Save the Campbell Cup movement.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious because it's just like for for history's sake, I'd really like to see what that looked like. I mean, I don't know if it would change my opinion on the movie like, wow, best movie ever, totally underrated. Or if it would, yeah, I don't know, like just make me feel un, unchanged or, or make me feel no different is what I mean. Um, either way, I would I would be really interested in seeing it.
0: Yeah, Green Lantern is a misfire. But I also don't think it's awfully bad. Like, I can rewatch it and have some fun with it. Especially when it does go off to Oa and we get, like, the history of the Lantern Corps and we start getting, like, the pal-sinistra relationship, which is so great in the comics. And I, I think that's one of the f- things the film did get right. Um, and, you know, we did get Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively together, which I think they're adorable, and I hope they're very happy together. Um, and it is cool when we get directors of, you know, big tentpole movies coming out later and being like, yeah, I made a mistake on that. Because so often it is part of the press machine of going like, no, like everything's fine. Like this is, you know, exaggerated and everything. And it is humbling to hear one of these directors like go, no, this is not for everyone. Like I think as an artist, I should be doing what I appreciate doing and what I know how to do. And I think that's super cool of him. I totally respect Martin Campbell a bit more about this. It certainly makes me question how long the, you know, interference of Warner Brothers has been going on on the DCN, minus if your name is Christopher Nolan, but you know, neither here nor there. Um, I would definitely... I'm definitely interested to see, you know, what this HBO Max Green Lantern series are developing is supposed to be. And we got some, you know, updates about that from uh Fiona Whitehead, Whiteheads who's gonna be in the in the uh series as well. But yeah, as far as the movie goes, like it is it is certainly a monument in the comic movie genre, albeit a very fractured one. Uh so you know, I I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. So Noah, uh your thoughts on the Green Lancer comics.
2: You know, fresh out of the theaters from watching his uh his project that released this week, The Protege, I was um, blown away to find out that this is the same director as the green lantern uh the green lantern yeah it serves as kind of like the comic like cold disaster um punching bag you name it uh what breaks my heart is to see martin campbell speak on it uh, i mean of course you know he's he is he is giving an explanation as to why he feels as though he didn't give it justice why he well, he gave reasons for his injustice um and sorry, shameless injustice plug. Um, Uh, and so (laughs) I, I tried to stretch that. Um, and so after seeing his work in the protege, I was, I mean, I was totally, um, amazed throughout the protege. He delivers action so, so beautifully. And the way that that film looks is just so clean. Um, I looked up the director because I had to see what other projects he was attached to. So learning that he, Um, had done the Green Lantern uh, was a surprise. You know, now we have Ryan Reynolds having two. At the time, we had Ryan Reynolds, you know, having those two poor iterations of a comic book character in his pocket, um, which he would then go on to legendarily redeem himself with Deadpool. Um, But we're speaking on Martin Campbell now. I want you to know that once we get to the portion, when we can talk about our movie reviews. I had so much fun with the protege and I, I can't wait to tell you more about it. Uh, Martin Campbell is a respected director in my book after seeing that, uh, respected action director for that part. Um, I think that, um, kudos to him for speaking on why he fumbled in the past, but you know, I want, I, I want our listeners to know, be excited for what's coming from him because, uh, the Protégé, it's, it's set a new bar for uh, what people can attach to his name. And um, I hope you go in there with that kind of expectation because he will deliver.
0: I should mention real quick, he does have a—he uh, does have another movie coming up called Memory with uh, Liam Neeson and Guy Pierce that's supposed to come out uh, next year. So I figured i mention that. Uh, I do want to bring up the, the uh, Bond thing real quick. i never seen GoldenEye. I am woefully unfamiliar with Bond. I did see Casino Royale, and it's awesome. Um, and I really would love to see his sensibility specifically to action brought back to the series at some point. Um, like all credit to what Sam Bennies has been doing with the series. Like, I'm sure that Carrie Fukunaga's uh, work is going to be amazing for No Time to Die, but I would love to see Campbell back to at least in some capacity, at least as a screenwriter. Um, I know that you guys are not nearly as familiar with Bond, uh, as I am. I, I, not as, not familiar with Bond as I am. I can't speak today.
2: <laughs> What are, I mean, her- you're all not as familiar as I am. <laughs> Brandon, you've seen two Bond movies. Shut up. Um, I did exactly
1: six Google searches before talking about my obsession <laughs> with Bond. <laughs> would-
0: I'm curious if either of you, just before we move on, would be interested in seeing Campbell come back to Bond, seeing what you have seen from especially Noah, since you've just seen his latest.
2: Yes, immediately. Yes. Yeah. I- and- I'm telling you. Yeah.
1: And for me, I'm actually really hyped because Noah made me hype, but the, you know like he's really pushing campbell and i'm just i'm I'm really excited to to see more because I think especially with a lot of the public they're just they they're just aware of Green Lantern and that's about it, which is not a good look <laughs> but
0: anyways, yes, he has much more than that. Um, We are going to move on to our final main topic for today, which is David Yates. I'm sure that many of you are wondering who the heck is David Yates, to which I say, have you seen any Harry Potter film in the last 10 years? You probably know who David Yates is. Basically, we got a report from Deadline that said, uh, with Fantastic Beasts 3 just recently having wrapped up, uh, director and Harry Potter mainstay David Yates is looking to do something new and smaller. Uh, again, this is exclusive from Deadline. You can go check that out. Uh, his next project is going to be actually for Sony, uh, not for Warner Brothers. Uh, supposedly, according to insider sources, in the vein of "quote Wolf of Wall Street within the pharmaceutical and opioid industry, and apparently he read a spec script. He really liked it. And because there has been a delay on the four Fantastic Beast movie in the meantime, he has been moving to Sony for that. Uh, if you're, again, if you're not familiar, Yates has been a pretty consistent voice in Harry Potter uh, since 2007 when he directed uh, Goblet of Fire. He has done every Harry Potter film since then, including the first two Fantastic Beast prequels. Warner Brothers intended uh, originally for Fantastic Beasts to consist of five films, which Yates has expressed interest in directing all five of those. However, uh, again, according to the deadline report, the fourth film has been delayed to some degree. We don't know how much. We don't know exactly the reasons why, but we know that it's not coming out at least for the next couple of years. So Yates is moving on to other things. Fantastic Beasts 3 is still set uh, for a theatrical release next July, and we'll see the return of many of the primary cast members, including Eddie Redmayne, Katherine Watterson, Jude Law, and Mads Mikkelsen, who is replacing Johnny Depp as uh, Grindelwald in that movie. Uh, So Sam, I want to get your thoughts because you and I have started the Fantastic Beasts journey five years ago almost with that first movie and we defend that movie uh we have you know differing opinions on the second one um but even as far as that goes uh what are your thoughts on yates moving away from harry potter and potentially the, the future of fantastic beasts as a whole
1: I don't blame him for moving just because I feel like with a franchise as big as Harry Potter, that's going to follow you, whether you were a director or a writer, any of the actors. I mean, we even see just as an example, with Daniel Radcliffe, he has steered so far away from, you know, all of his projects that he's done since Harry Potter from, you know, like, I I don't know, like just anything from indies to actions to villain roles. It's just interesting. Um, And so I don't blame David Yates for wanting to kind of go past Harry Potter and and exploring more avenues. Um, And so – I am excited to see what he will do, especially because I have liked his work. I significantly like the darker sides and shades that Harry Potter took with the films that he uh, created. And so I, I would really like to see more of his work that's outside of our um, our wizarding world here.
2: Yeah, the the feel of the Harry Potter movies definitely, I guess, on from my perspective, having not like been as involved with uh, cat like crew members um, or researching that back when I was a, a Harry Potter fan, super fan, I saw Deathly Hallows Part Two, I believe, um, in eighth grade at an AMC with a with a buddy of mine, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I was blown away, um, and I think just. Uh, the Harry Potter movies, in, in my opinion, like they do, they do so well together. Um, and my favorite, not that this is a Harry Potter podcast, my favorite is The Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, around as the Order of the Phoenix, go. as far as the movies go, okay. um, when it comes to the, uh, the direction of the movies after the Order of the Phoenix, when, uh, David Yates stepped in, it's, I'm not surprised now why they all worked so well, because they had that same visionary uh, behind the camera. And so to learn that he is um, part of the Fantastic Beasts I will return and I will rewatch those. Um, Sam and Brandon are definitely more of the fans in the room, but um, I'm at least aware of them. So I need to go and actually need to watch the second one. Um, the first one, I think I was going into it just with too much Harry Potter in mind and Hogwarts and not enough of like, hey, like let's expand this. Let's expand the world, you know. Um, so I want to return to it. If we're going to be talking uh, Fantastic Beasts in the future, then I want to be sitting at the popular table with you too. Um, and I would just say... Uh, you know, stepping away from Harry Potter. It's a drama, obviously, but I don't know like where to fit it in kind of a sub drama having to do, sub genre having to do with Wall Street. Um, it's not, it doesn't pique my interest, um, but clearly it's a project that he feels passionate and he's working on. So I would follow him. I would follow him because of the fantastic work that we have seen him uh, do in our Harry Potter worlds. Um, but I'm I'm reluctant to to get the same, uh, appeal without all of the the magic and and just the nature of living in a world with wizards so um let's see how he does uh, we'll we'll be watching closely and then we'll be able to tell you all about it
0: all i can say about and i have a lot to say about, but I, I will simply say thank effing god i have been waiting and i'm I'm sorry to exaggerate i have been waiting for years years for david Gates to step away from big temple blockbusters and do something and that's not just harry potter because the only non-harry potter film that he has done since 2007 is his legend of tarzan movie with margot robbie which i actually didn't hate um but aside from that he has only done harry potter for the last how long has it been 14 years and i have been just screaming at him just like yes i like your harry potter stuff like deathly hollows movies are Phenomenal, and like Order of the Phoenix, I think it's kind of underrated. And the first Fantastic Beast movie, I think it's great, but please just step out of the Wizarding world. Do something else, like stretch your director. We were just talking about Martin Campbell earlier, and I think that is so important for people not to get locked into you know giant studio tentpole filmmaking. Because what do you get? You get you know for better or worse, you get a Brian Singer, you get Simon Kinberg, you get all these examples of directors who step into that system and stay for it way too long. And I was so afraid that David Yates would start to do that and Kranz Grindelwald kind of shows that he was starting to get there on top of everything else that is going on with Wizarding World, like whether it's all the JK Rowling stuff, whether it's the Johnny Depp stuff, whether it's the aforementioned studio interference at Warner Brothers, whether it's the HBO max stuff, you know, jutting its way in, all of that stuff is colliding into this franchise that I think can be really cool. And I would love for David to continue with it, but look, go do like this period drama of like the opioid, like make your Scorsese drama. Like that sounds super cool. And I think, I haven't seen his uh, his debut, the Chiefsborne Clement. So, I again, I want him to do something else. This made me so happy to hear. But postpone Fantastic Beasts 4 and 5. We'll get those later. I am happy about this. You know, go nuts for it. All right, let's get into some new releases for this week. Uh, we're going to start off with one that came out last week, but all three of us have seen, and we wanted to have, you know, a good discussion about it. Uh, Sean Levy's Free Guy, uh, of course, from 20th Century Studios, now under Disney. Uh, this is, of course, directed by Sean Levy from a script from uh, Matt Lieberman and Zach Penn, who also wrote Freddy Player One. That will be important in a minute. Um, also starring uh, Ryan Reynolds, who produces the film, as well as Jodie Comer, Loray Howery, Ukar, uh, Amduka, and Taika Waititi, uh, as well as Joe Curie from Stranger Things. Free Guy, I'm sure many of you have seen it at this point. It revolves around a guy named Guy. Uh, he is an NPC in a video, in a video game called, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the name, Free City. Free City. <laughs> Free, City. Free City. And I, Spoiler, I'm a fan of this movie. Um, <laughs> he, he is an NPC living in a video game called Free City. It is about to get an update into a game called Free City 2, headed by a developer played by Taika Waititi and one of his coders played by Joe Curie. Uh, one day, Guy runs into this new avatar played by Jodie Comer uh and basically discovers that his whole world is kind of a lie he's in a video game all of this madness is going on he has to figure out what matters he has to figure out how to save the game and you know remarkable things ensue ai questions of you know morality come up you know friendships and relationships are made all of the good stuff uh sam you uh you saw this with me we saw this with a couple of our friends and uh, thank you again that was amazing um i Really enjoyed this. Uh, I like a lot of Sean Levy's work. I love his work on the Night Museum movies. Um, I like his work on Big Fat Liar. Like, I think the guy, I have have issues when it comes to some of his storytelling pacing. I think he's not particularly deep sometimes, at least as much as he wants to be. But what he is very good at is spectacle and general lovability for the characters. I think all that comes through here. Like, Ryan Reynolds is not playing that much against type but he's playing just enough against type where it seems like he's an outsider in this time. And I like that compared to some of his other work. Um, it's not buried, it's not the voices, it's not even Deadpool, but like, it's good for what it is. Um, I think at times it becomes, again, a bit too much for itself. Like I like the AI stuff at first. Like I remember coming out of the end and thinking like, oh, that was so cool, they addressed this. Like, that's actually a really cool thing about this. And the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, but it's a, it's a little bit surface level. It does, it kind of gets away from itself towards the third act. That being said, it's hilarious. I think the jokes really land in this. Um, I think Jodie Comer is great in this. It makes me really want to watch Killing Eve, and I have not gotten around to it yet. Um, Taika Waititi steals every scene as the, you know, dickwad Steve Jobs, Pestiche in this, Um, and I I really, I love seeing him act. I wish he did it more. Um, Everyone in this is good. Like, I like the music. I like the humor. It doesn't totally stick the landing for me, but I enjoyed it immensely. If you have not seen it, it it's a great crowd pleaser, and I can totally recommend it. Uh, Sam, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I thought the same thing. It's basically like what Ready Player Player One should have been. Um, It should have been something fun. It should have been something that had an influence in like pop culture and gaming. And that's exactly what this was. It combined every, everything for every nerd stream in one movie. And I mean, honestly, I really liked the so- small, subtle nods to people who play video games in there. I mean, like uh, you see people who are like crouch spamming, which is ridiculous, but it, yeah, if, if you play video games, you get that. And it's such a deep joke um, for anyone who would play video games and it's stupid and childish, but that's neither, neither here nor there. And so with Free Guy, I just think it did a really great job with engaging the audience because the entire time I was entertained. There was never a time when I thought there was a dull moment at all. And like I see your point that the, you know, it felt like the last third of the movie felt completely different from what they were setting up the field with this AI um plot device but it's like you know i think it still did a really good job by being a good crowd pleaser for a summer movie especially so I, I was really happy with it and honestly i can't wait till i could see it again
0: yeah especially when it becomes you know basically the lego movie meets the matrix what what is
2: essentially becomes <laughs> pretty um, much yes Yes, as soon as um, we learned about this NPC waking up in the Free City world, I go, oh, Lego movie. Like that that reminded me of the Lego movie because we have uh, Chris Pratt's, um, oh, what's his name? Um, I don't remember the name. What is it? Emmett oh, right, Emmett. Emmett. oh, okay. So we have Chris Pratt's Emmett awakening in that Lego universe. And so I kind of went in here thinking, ooh, like this is pretty much that, but in GTA, like what's going to go on here? Uh, Free City, very much like an open world Um Open world, just mayhem based game. There's chaos everywhere. Jets are flying through the city. Crimes are happening just like, like as, as a casual um, occurrence on any um, city street. We have Jody Comer coming from Killing Eve, which I am so much behind. Like, I am a big fan of the Killing Eve show. Um, a friend of mine suggested it to me after two seasons were already released. And after I watched the first, I was like, oh, how, how have I not? How have I not jumped on board with this already? Um, and then, of course, Jodie Comer won her, um, I believe, Golden Globe for her performance as um, Villanelle in Killing Eve. Brandon is going to double check that, um, but seeing her in a different role in as Villanelle in Killing Eve, she's very much uh, a conniving, um, very out for her own, very out for her own interests. Um, T- complete badass in that movie. So to see her take on the um take on opposite Ryan Reynolds and Free Guy, she actually plays the original developer of the game that Ryan Reynolds exists in that guy exists in. And so um I'm the one, I'm the one of the three of us who uh saw it. I wrote a review for it, and so I totally was picking it apart and thinking like, okay, well, what does this deliver really to the gaming community? And I think what it does is it brings in that hilarity of, uh, just absurdity that exists in video games. Like I, I point out that when you reach behind yourself in any kind of video game or any kind of shooter, you're going to pull out the biggest RPG, or you're going to pull out like the biggest vehicle destroying device because it was just in your back pocket. Cause you have it in your inventory. And that's something that you don't visualize ever, but in free guy, they do take moments where they just, you look at the video game characters and you're like, okay, they're doing things like just standing there going AFK. Like, what are they doing? They're just, they're doing nothing in the real world, but because it's a video game, you can have those fun moments um Jodie Comer was phenomenal Ryan Reynolds was um not Deadpool and I I loved to see that uh it was surprising and um by the time Brandon thank you for the correction Jodie Comer was a primetime Emmy winner in 2019 for her portrayal as Villanelle in Killing Eve um there is uh this sort of global spotlight that the story eventually commands and I think at that point that's when I uh was watching it from a like, then I started watching it. Like I took a step back and I continued watching it. Cause I think at that point it made me, um, it made me just doubt like that was a little bit too large and grand scale for me. Grandiose. Um, uh, because I doubt that like the whole world would be looking at these streaming services, but Hey, you got to lose yourself in the fun for a movie that relies heavily on just like that video game hilarity. Speaking of the jokes, you're right. You know, there are some that are more crude and cringe that just made me want to like erase them. But when you're a part of the gaming community, you're aware of all of these open mic channels where any kind of voice can just dominate if they're loud enough. But thankfully we all have a mute and a block button. Uh, but that being said, it felt like uh, they are pulling enough from gaming culture for me as a gamer uh, to appreciate the movie. Um, I know you two are both gamers, so I hope that you loved it for that repeal. And um, we get a pretty like standout call to um, some of our Marvel heroes. So if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you make yourself to the theater, or make your way to the theater because um, the way that it introduces some of the uh, other franchise references um, is done wonderfully. And I would, I would definitely go watch this again.
0: Totally. Uh, if we're doing ratings out of 10, I, I'm giving it a 7.5. I'm a little bit harsher on it just because again, some of the things started to not sit as well with me. But again, I, I do find it genuinely entertaining. I did laugh consistently hard. Um, and I do think this is another great outing for Ryan Reynolds. I hope that, you know, the sequel that Disney just authorized does come to being. I think there's more to this world that you can do. Um, so, yeah, very fun, very entertaining. I just did not love it to the same degree.
1: I'm more of an eight myself because I I did like it a lot. And I I feel like narratively there were a couple of points that I would have seen – differently i would have liked to have seen differently but otherwise it, it was a really solid movie and would recommend seeing it it's it's worth anyone's time and money
2: i had so much fun with it i there wasn't a dull moment for me um or at least if it was it it, it groomed over so so effortlessly that i i forgot about it already now it's already back engaged in free city um i'm gonna i, I think it was a, a little too long um i'm gonna give it a 7.5 along with you brendan i think that um Had it been just a little bit shorter and had some of those references came in earlier, I think the impact would have been like on the audience, you would have left being like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't, I didn't enter this knowing what to expect. Um, But they kind of hold on to those cards until the very end. um, And I think that that lessens it, but still, it's still so grand. Um, Seven and a half, 7.5.
0: Awesome. Uh, We are going to move on then to Annette, which uh, Sam and I have said, Noah, have you seen Annette?
2: I've not seen Annette.
0: Yeah, we'll get through it quick so we can get to yours. <laughs> and that's yet. Um this is uh this is the latest from uh Lios Carax, who also did uh twenty twelves Holy Motors. He's very prominent in the uh French film scene. This is his latest uh, for uh, for UGC, uh, and it stars Adam Driver, Marion Cotillard, Simon Helberg, and Devin McDowell, uh, as well as really Fukushima, who I did not know was in this. Um, it also features music and production of uh, the film from Ron and Russell Mayle, aka the Sparks Brothers, who are also the subject of the Sparks Brothers documentary from earlier this year, which I loved. Uh, basically, the film. How to describe it. Um, Essentially, Adam Driver is a stand-up comedian. Uh, He is married to a soprano opera singer named Anne, played by Marion Cotillard. Uh, And they have a daughter uh, uh, named Annette, who is portrayed in the movie in a very different way. Uh, Let's just say, if you don't know a ton about it, um, I would watch the trailers because it doesn't really give anything away. Um, And basically, the movie just kind of Explores their marriage and their family life uh, after having this child. There is also a composer in their life, played by Simon Helberg, of course in The Bang Theory, uh, who may or may not have connections to Anne, who may not have connections to a lot of uh, both of their work. Uh, and yeah, it's a musical, of course, with uh, music as I said by the Sparks Brothers. And uh, Sam, I want to get your thoughts on this first uh, because you did, in fact, review it. Did you? You did. Review I did. It? I, yeah,
1: I- absolutely. No, you're you're absolutely right. I loved Annette a lot. It is the weirdest movie that anyone will see in 2021 i i stand by that fully and it's very avant-garde but having said all that i absolutely adored it and and it's weird because normally i don't like really far out movies but this one for some reason spoke to me and maybe i was oversimplifying what y- the creators were trying to uh to say with this movie but the way i interpreted it was that it's this big uh metaphor for the exploitation of love and like what that can bring in your life. And we see that exploitation in a variety of different ways. And that could either be uh, familial filial uh, romantically uh, involved relationships um, professionally, professionally, and even celebrity obsessive. uh, I can't think of the words And, and even celebrity obsessed love it. That's just, Um, really clear to see throughout this movie that there's just this kind of obsession for people and each other, and how that could really bring some kind of downfall to our mental states, to what happens between our physical relationships and so on, and so I I really enjoyed it, and I really did very little research beforehand, but I poured through the production notes like crazy afterwards, because I had so many different questions, like how they were able to create Annette's character, because if you see the movie, you'll see that she's portrayed in a very different way and i was wondering how was this done was it through practical effects or through like cgi and so i i yeah poured through the production notes but really loved it and i cannot talk enough about the music i i loved it so much it was so catchy and i was singing so many of the songs in my head like for a week and so i overall really loved annette and and i would absolutely recommend it to people and it felt like a very shakespearean movie so if you like something that's very out there, uh, and you're willing to give something a try, definitely would recommend Annette for sure.
0: I will definitely go off your Shakespearean comment in that it is long and it feels long, uh, especially towards like the middle of the movie where I felt just get on with it. Um, I will say having watched the Sparks Brothers documentary and having now being big fans of the male brothers getting to see them actually you know, get their goal. Because they talk about in that documentary of like, we want to do films. And like getting to see this and the music that comes out of it, it's spectacular. Like, I will be humming So May We Start for probably the next week or so. It's so damn catchy. Um, But a lot of the other songs are great. Like Adam Driver, who is phenomenal in this, by the way, he's excellent. Uh, He is not the greatest singer in the world, but he is able to carry a tune and carry a ton of emotion with it. And I think that totally works. Uh, It's with his character too. It totally works for this character, who is supposed to be kind of, you know, loud and boisterous, but not really have the filter to, you know, bring it all through. I think that totally works. Um, Marion Cotillard is beautiful. I don't think, I don't know for sure if that's her singing voice, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, and Simon Helberg, who, if you're wondering if he's an actor, is good in this. Like, he's not this, like, fu- he's good in this. Like, he holds his own. And I was completely shocked. Um, as does uh, Devin McDowell, who plays uh, Annette. And again, I I don't want to spoil things, but she plays it very, very well. Uh, I don't love this movie for for two reasons. One, because again, I think it's Leo's Karox trying to, and I'm not familiar with Karox's other work. Like I never saw Holy Motors. I just know that like every film nerd I know loves it. Um, But I think he tries to jam a little bit too much in and tries to rely too much on the music to drive the story instead of letting the characters drive it which I know sounds weird because the characters are supposed to drive the music, but I felt like he was too focused on making a musical and not as much a compelling exploration into, again, you know, Stan culture and obsessive familial relationships and things like that. Like, I think those things are there and they're interesting because the actors are giving so much to it. But I think direction-wise, it loses itself on more than one occasion. The other thing is that there's like, there's certain things that it, I don't think it endorses, but it definitely puts forward that I was just like, I'm not going to deal with Holocaust jokes that are just in there because they're edgy. Like, I'm not going to deal with that. But I know that's, you know, up to discretion. And I know some people, will you know, take that for what it is. And it just didn't work for me, no. But again, the music is fantastic. The performances are mostly excellent. And I do think there is something to the story that I really appreciated. And also from a color perspective, like the use of color in the movie is really cool. The way that it uses like green and red specifically is like these diametrically imposed forces. It sounds super pretentious, but I think it was super cool um so yeah, i appreciated it i just don't love it by any means
1: one can argue that it was a pretty pretentious movie so i totally understand where you're coming from with that that statement
0: <laughs> all right uh ratings out of 10 i'm gonna stick with a six on this and that feels generous just because i like i've read some reviews of people who kind of stand by me of just like oh you know this is not all that this is you know super overrated and i agree with that but i do think there's legitimate craft here again there are things about here that i think are spectacular I just really think it would have dealt with you know ten to fifteen minutes cut off, maybe another script polish, you know, maybe focusing in on one or two themes. And again, maybe just not being so out there to understand. I don't know. I think there's a limit.
1: And for me, I think I'm sticking with my rating from uh, our from my article in Odyssey Online. And so I, I think I stuck with a nine if I if I am correct. But I just, I honestly really loved it. It's one of those movies where I wouldn't really change a lot, if anything. And so I, I had fun. It felt like I was watching a play when um, in reality, it was a really interesting movie just from my point of view. So yeah, I would go with a nine.
0: We are going to move on to a dual review from Noah, uh, The Protégé and The Nighthouse, House, uh, which neither of us have seen. And I am actually going to drop out to grab my charger, so I will let you take that.
2: All right. Thank you, Brandon. Yes. I got two reviews that I have seen this or that I prepared this week for you all. It is the protege and it is, it is the night house. The protege of course, starring Samuel Jackson, Maggie Q. And Michael Keaton. And then the night house is starring Rebecca Hall. Two very different movies, but uh, definitely within my avenues of action and spy thriller and then um, horror psychological. Um, it, was it was a trip okay so let's go ahead and go into uh, the protege first the protege um stars maggie q she plays um an assassin that was brought up um by samuel jackson's character and Michael Keaton stars he kind of plays um as a half bad guy but he just like opposites Maggie's Maggie Q's character um and where I want to go with this review is just letting you know that this movie takes action and um delivers it tenfold um the marketing all has from the producer or from the same studio sorry that brought you John Wick and I think that that was just like a marketing gimmick to kind of get people who weren't um on board with, uh, the title or with some of the other material that they had. Well, at least they could ride with that John Wick callback. Um, that's what I assumed. Then I watched it and I was like, Whoa, like that is well, that is a well-deserved caption to throw on some of those marketing material because, um, our main character, Anna, she does not miss. She counts her bullets. She is a action star. Um, she's thorough. She gets in, she gets out, not saying that there's no bloodshed. There is so much blood in this movie. That is why I I appreciate it. You know, any um any uh, I guess burst of that red splatter uh is is reminding me of the last time I saw it. So in this case, the last time we saw this much blood was in the Suicide Squad, which I was you know surprised to be as bloody as it was. Well, going into the Protege, you aren't introduced to that that element um until you see Maggie Q's character perform her like carry out her first, um, her first task, her first really hit. And I, I was on board from that point forward. Um, this is a, a spy thriller that takes you um, across different cities. Um, forgive me for not remembering them right now, but a portion of it does take place in Vietnam where Maggie Q's character originates. Um, and after she is, um, uh, after her family is executed, um, in Vietnam, that is when Samuel Jackson's character brings her up, and then their relationship from that point becomes something that is very familiar and very touching, um, even though they both work on assassination hits together so for a portion of my review i talk about um the relationships because uh seeing samuel jackson and Maggie uq play off of each other um i'm like where's my three more sequels after this because um I, I it's seeing samuel jackson the last time i saw him was in the movie spiral didn't completely love him there we all know him as nick fury um but then seeing him return in the protege uh this was a character that i um was totally rooting for because Samuel Jackson was behind it. Um, Maggie Q, if some of you are familiar from her TV action work in Nikita, um, she comes on screen in the protege and just dominates. Like there isn't a scene where she um, is second is secondary to any other character. She's of course the. Um, the protagonist that we're following. And when she meets Michael Keaton's character, I think that's where we're going to get a little something new or where audiences are going to get something new because we're not just getting another big bad with some heavily based, like evil moral uh, scope of his. Like Michael Keaton is a pretty fun character to witness in this movie because although he's working for um, the antagonizing party, his relationship with Maggie Q's Anna just makes you excited for when the both of them are on screen together, because you don't know what can happen. They're a little bit flirty. This movie is very sexy. um, a la, You know what, I'm, I'm going to save that because I don't want to spoil like anything that you might be thinking of. Um, But I, I was just happy to see. Um, I was happy to see action, like in my opinion, like at its finest again, um, I love shooters and this is definitely like a shoot first, ask questions, never, (laughs) uh, when I say Anna's character is thorough, she wastes no time in debate. She's looking for the next, um, the next material that she can turn into a weapon a la John Wick. Um, and, uh, the sequences that are involved in this movie are, um, I think they're refreshing. I think if you're an action fan, you'll go into this and you'll see new things, um, and you'll still be surprised. Uh, it definitely started, um, It, I think it's going to start to, I hope, get a following that is large enough to push a sequel because this character is somebody that I would come back and back time and time and again to watch. One particular downside is that I think with any spy thriller at times it can get hard for you to understand like what the big move is and what i mean by that is like why why are we really chasing after our bad guy like why why what did he do that was so um terrible that you have this vendetta against him and of course there is um somebody taken from anna that drives her character on this on this journey but you kind of, you almost get distracted by how by how great these moments are that you lose scope of Oh, wait, like, wait, why are we pursuing him again? Oh, yeah, it's because of, you know, XYZ delivered in action. Uh, This may not be it, but, you know, go into it with the right expectation and you'll be pleasantly um, surprised. Moving on to my next review, Um, we are we are turning out the lights, you know, light all your light all your candles. We are watching The Night House starring Rebecca Hall, and she plays a um, she plays a widow, I'm sorry, I was going to say widower. She, Rebecca Hall, stars in The Night House as a widow. And um, this movie takes place right after she has lost her lover. Um, Or I can't remember if he's her husband or not. Forgive me. Um, And what becomes really creepy is she starts to, her living in the house starts to become Deranged may be the wrong word for, it, but there's just an entity in her house that is influencing the way that she sleeps, what she sees when she sleeps, what she's aware of when she's awake. Um, what's new in the night house is atmosphere. Of course, there are some jump scares that I always I always appreciate, you know, the the one or two, but when it becomes super heavy, um, in my opinion, I thought that uh Um, A Quiet Place Part 2 was a little heavily reliant on the jump scare. So I wasn't as behind it. But with The Night House, it definitely goes for more of atmospheric. We're familiar with house set horrors, um, hereditary, um, insidious, strangers. Like the the setting of the house is like making that something terrifying is uh, a bender because that's where we feel the most safe. Rebecca Hall's character discovers that her late, um, husband or her late partner had been designing a floor plan, an entire house that was the reverse floor plan of her own house. So that just harbors a bunch of secrets that she comes to this, that she moves on to discover, um, a lot of them more sinister than you'd expect. And, this all happens at the same time as her experiencing her grief so i think this movie uh does has the juxtaposition of um moving through your grief of losing a loved one as well as feeling this malevolent malevolent presence um in your house and sometimes that can be hard to distinguish from from that grief and so uh i think this movie balances the two well uh I want to return to it because I still have plenty of questions about where the story went, um, what the ending means, as well as, uh, you know, what, what lies, what lies ahead for our protagonist. Um, but I'm, I don't consider that a downside. Walking away with questions is never a bad thing for me. And so going into this horror, you, you will be scared. I will say it is a scary ass movie. <laughs> I, um, I had the opportunity to have a, um, a viewing at my house of this movie, um, and I invited my partner to sit on the couch and watch it with me. She does not like horror movies, but I said, Hey, that, what, what do you mean? Like, it's come on. Like, it's like, it's for work. Like I can, you can handle it. Right. And she's like, yeah, you know, a popcorn, everything's going to be great covering her eyes the entire time (laughs) we were both at times i was looking at her and going okay i'm gonna gauge how scared i should be based on her because usually mine's like a times four of whatever she is so when she was there like holding on to her couch i um was right there with her uh this movie gets you and uh i love that about horror i love the shock that it can give you and the immediate relief of like um so the night house the night house tells an excellent story about um a widow moving through her grief at the same time fighting this, this entity that exists around her that kind of shrouds her. And um, it's it's unique. I haven't seen a movie like this um, that that balanced the two as well as it did. And um, whether you're a horror fan or you want to um, see more of Rebecca Hall's work after seeing her in Godzilla versus Kong, um, make your way to theaters. Uh, I do recommend The Night House. Uh, the tens for me on these last two, The Protégé. Um, I know I'm like I'm like a super fan of the protege right now. Um, I would give it right now. You're the only fan of the protege. I'm the only fan of the protege right now. I would give the protege. I was so impressed. I would give it an eight and a half. And when it comes to the night house. I would give The Night House, I think it well deserves an eight. I do have questions that I'm still asking myself. Uh, If a film can make me ask questions and still leave with that eerie feeling that something's watching me over my shoulder, uh, I'm going to be a fan of it for a while.
0: Duly noted. So yeah, both are getting recommendations. You got it. Okay, uh, last but not least, I will get to Reminiscence very quickly. This is the newest uh, project from Warner Brothers and HBO Max. It is directed by Lisa Joy, who is best known for her work on Westworld, along with uh, Jonathan Nolan, her husband, who... Yes, is Christopher Nolan's brother, who also produces this movie. So it's a whole Westworld reunion in there. This is her feature directorial debut. It stars Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Tendy Wayne newton Daniel Wu, and Cliff Curtis. Uh, Basically, the movie revolves around Hugh Jackman's character, uh, Nick, who is sort of a private investigator slash consultant slash inventor. It's never really quite clear what he does, but he has invented, along with Tendy Wayne newton this machine, that can, when you attach yourself to it, it can allow yourself to visualize and explore past memories and past trauma and past emotions within like a visual medium kind of thing. It's a very cool, like Star Trek transporter looking thing with like a headband. It's a really cool looking device. But he to say, one day he gets an appointment uh, last minute from a mysterious woman uh, named May, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And he she is supposedly just looking for her lost keys. It's a very simple, you know, go and get the memory thing. And then eventually, Both Hugh Jackman and Tendi Wagoon's characters start to think, uh, wait, there's stuff she was trying not to tell us in the memory banks. What is she hiding about this? This all correlates to a crime lord played by Cliff Curtis and a fellow criminal played by Daniel Wu, uh, along with sort of the local police department. Uh, Brett Cullen from uh, Joker and Boardwalk Empire plays like a local, uh, as they call it, a land baron, because in this timeline... Uh, climate change has taken a severe hold like most of miami is very much flooded so a lot of the skyscrapers are you know it it values land more than you know currently is so this is interesting i heard a lot of comparisons between blade runner and inception for this and they are valid uh especially blade runner like the way that nick narrates the way that you know lisa joy directs this and uh, paul cameron's cinematography like the long sweeping shots of like you know a climate change destroyed Miami look really cool and the way they do like you know like riverboat cities and like little house sit like how all that works together is really quite cool um Hugh Jackman is really good in this as per usual Rebecca Ferguson plays a really good time for Tal um and weirdly uh, yeah go ahead
2: it got a little choppy in your last sentence that was just on my Uh, end though Sam did you hear anything
0: yeah I did too I will start from that then
2: you can start from Hugh Jackman. That was—I uh, heard you were clear.
0: Uh, Hugh Jackman is really good in this, uh, as per usual, especially in a scene towards the third act where something comes to light and you really get to see all the emotion just drain out of this character, who for so long has been kind of, you know, another Blade Runner comparison. Our Rick Deckard of this, like, very stoic, very straightforward, and then his world is eventually shattered. Uh, Daniel Wu is kind of amazing in this. Uh, I wish we saw more things from him. I think he's so fun to watch. And he's not in it for very long, but I really wish he was. And Tendi-Way Newton, who you know, I always love seeing pop up in things. Rebecca Ferguson plays a really convincing femme Patal. On the one hand, Lisa Joy is an incredibly effective world builder. On the other hand, she's not great with specifics. Um, there's a lot of questions in this movie about how sort of, you know, how the memories machine sort of works, like what's accessible towards it how nick's character is able to you know access certain memories and like what's off limits and once you start to get wrapped around that like towards the second half of the movie like once sort of the crime elements of the movie comes into play you're like well that character didn't meet that character and that character was over here at this time so how does this character remember this when you look at flashbacks and it'll be like supposed to be through the person's eyes but instead you'll see like a wide tracking shot and you're like that's not possible with memories but okay um technically this is really cool i think narrative wise there is something to be said about you know the value of nostalgia and the value of looking back and owning up to closure because nick's character is also a veteran so he has to be dealing with this trauma as well i I would certainly just say that reminiscence is interesting if incredibly flawed for what it's trying to do but i do think it's certainly worth a watch if you're into like big bold sci-fi movies As far as ratings go, I am going to give this a solid 7.5. I think, again, it is incredibly flawed, but I admire a lot of Lisa Joy's ambition in this. I hope we see, number one, more big-budget sci-fi movies from women, but especially from her as a storyteller. I cannot wait to check out Westworld eventually if this is what she brings to that table. And especially if you're a sci-fi nerd, you will find things that do not work in this that are way derivative, but I think there's enough fun and interesting themes to be had with it to make it unique. So go check it out. I thought it was cool.
2: Brandon, if ever you want to talk Westworld, I'm here for you. I will be sitting at that table with you, because Westworld, one of my top shows, too.
0: Give it another few months. It's down the docket, but... You got it. Now we're, of course, going to hop into our TV stuff for the week. But once again, we are talking What If, but that being Marvel's What If on Disney+, Plus, episode two, just dropped this week. What if T'Challa became Star-Lord? So this tells the story of, of essentially in the 2014 Gardens of the Galaxy movie, we get, you know, if any of you have seen that, we get the intro of that movie, which is, you know, Peter Quill gets abducted by Yondu and the Ravagers. The events of Guardians unfold. He goes to form the Guardians and that all happens at the same time. T'Challa, of course, played by Chadwick Boseman, becomes the Black Panther in Civil War. He goes on to his solo movie and deals with Killmonger and all that stuff leading to the timeline. But what if uh, what if that didn't happen? Uh, what if instead of Peter Quill being abducted, what if it was actually T'Challa? He gets abducted by Yondu and the Ravagers, who mistake him for Peter. uh, Of course, still on a mission for Ego, Peter's father. But instead, in this timeline, uh, the Ravagers actually become a bit of a force for good. Like, T'Challa actually becomes a really good influence on them. Uh, He actually recruits a number of very cool characters, who we may or may not wind up spoiling in the discussion. And basically, years later, when T'Challa is now an adult... Uh, he believes that Wakanda has been destroyed. He believes that sort of, you know, his old life is behind him, and he fully dedicates himself to, you know, galactic endeavors. In this case, a mission against uh, the Collector, once again voiced by Benicio Del Toro, who has stolen this thing called the Embers of Genesis, which is this terraforming device. And, you know, T'Challa is sort of like the Robin Hood of the Ravagers, like giving to the needy and, you know, from away from the corrupt. And it's this very exciting story. No, I want to get your thoughts on this, uh, just from a purely conceptual level, and then also from the episode itself.
2: Uh, you got it. Last week when we were talking, we all really appreciated the art style as well as the direction for some of the storytelling um, that lies ahead for the what if series. Um, speaking of Westworld, always great to hear Jeffrey Wright's voice again, coming back as the watcher. we will probably half him in every episode, just introducing us to uh, what story lies ahead. New notes for this episode are a hearing Chadwick Bozeman as uh, Peter Quill, or I'm sorry, as star Lord, um, beautiful. You know, this isn't going to be his final episode. I was reading that he will reprise uh, different iterations of um Star-Lord in in following episodes. So that that was pretty great to hear. You know, we're going to see him have fun with the character. Um the Wakandan music whenever that comes in, I am just like I'm engaged and I'm ready to hear um ready to be a part of whatever scene that lies ahead of us. And then a new note for this episode is we aren't just we aren't just cut and pasting other characters into these roles and seeing like, Oh, what would happen if they just fit and have the same storyline? Like this was a clear example of um, other characters becoming introduced and their storylines. Like I think completely going off, off, off script. Um, With the first episode, I thought that agent Carter picking up the shield and becoming the first Avenger, it was still structured in that, that first Avenger storyline for um, um, Steve Rogers's captain america well now when we have t'challa as star lord it it follows a different route and that's what i want to see i want to see not just um one character one character swap i want to see the entire world being affected because of that swap i want to see what their influence um what that changes in the universe and then uh if they continue that across more than just one episode uh, that's what i want i still want continuity but i know that that's not what the point of the series is um but yeah, I think th- those are my new notes for this episode. I was I was very I was very pleased.
1: Uh, Seb, what's going on yeah. with you? Yeah, and for me, with what if I I actually wasn't a fan of the second episode nearly as much as the first one, and I think it's because to me it felt like they were shoving way too much into one episode. I I absolutely loved the first one. I felt like it was really concise and focused on um you know just agent carter and what it would be like if she was the first avenger but for this one it just felt like they were shoving too many references for me and I'm trying to be as spoiler free as I can, but we see some characters come back who were super minor. They were more like nods to things in the Marvel cinematic universe in past movies. And we see them again in different ways. And so uh, what that could mean for future episodes or the future of the Marvel cinematic universe is yet to be seen. I'm interested in seeing where that goes, if we'll see more of those characters, but it just kind of felt like, it was a, a lot for me to take in. It just felt like I was I was getting whiplash at every turn. With like, oh, there's a reference to Thor props from from uh, what's the movie Love and Thunder? Ragnarok. Yeah, Ragnarok. Thank you. So then, yeah, it felt like I was getting thrown with whiplash back and forth, seeing things like uh, props from Thor Ragnarok, you know, and then all of a sudden we see something from Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, and and I don't know. To me, it just felt like it was a lot, but I. I just love to see something uh, posthumous for Chad Chadwick Boseman in this. And um, that was just a really nice nod to his work as well. So that I'd say was probably my favorite part of this episode to see T'Challa in a a whole new storyline for that character.
0: I don't think you can understate how big it is to hear Chadwick Boseman back again. Because I know certain audiences who felt just such a pain and loss at the at the uh, death of Chadwick Boseman and and he is terrific in this he really is and that sort of you know no nonsense you know adventurer approach that chris pratt was able to embody so beautifully in the in the guardians movies i think he takes that and turns it to 11 because one of the things that i love about this and has made perfectly clear to me about what if is that we're not just approaching what if events happen differently we're also approaching like what happens when you take the iconography of these characters whether it's a captain america or a star lord or an iron man and you take that out of the context of the person like what are the elements that make the icon the thing that it is versus the actual person i love the merging of the black panther and guardians world building i love the you know the new sense of like you were you know You had complaints about how, like, everything is kind of being thrown against the wall with this. I love that because that's what I wanted What If to be is this thing of you don't know what's going to happen with this. And I really wanted to explore that kind of thing of, like, I want this to feel... So when we get to that ending scene with, you know, those two characters, I was like, oh, not only is this a cool setup, it really provides, like, a unique new world and perspective for this. The, The score, Laura Cartman has been doing wonders on this between Alan Silvestri and, you know, uh uh Lubigoritz and the score cues and everything on that i really enjoyed this more than the first one i cannot wait to see next week if this is any indication so i had a lot of fun with this
2: you two have you seen what the what the next what if is going to be about
0: i don't know if they've released the next hold on uh, uh
1: according to imdb it says what if loki presented himself to the governments of earth as king of asgard using all his diplomacy
0: oh that's the thor episode okay
1: It seems like there are going to be multiple Thor episodes.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: This one specifically on Loki. So this will be fun, especially because after the Loki series, I have, I adore Loki even more than I already did, which I did not think was possible.
2: And Brandon, you're keeping your eye out on the new Star Wars content. We did did get a trailer for Star Wars Visions. Um, What can you share with us about that?
0: Yeah, so this is the new anime inspired uh, Star Wars series. We got this announced uh, back with all of the other Star Wars stuff back in December at the uh, Disney Plus announcement. And it is going to be handled as nine separate anthology stories from different Japanese animation studios. Uh, We also got a voice cast announced, including the likes of uh, Brian T, uh, Lucy Liu, Justin Gordon Levin is going to be a part of this. And all of these stories are again going to be telling completely separate, supposedly non canon stories. We'll see. Um, In regards to how different animation studios will tackle stories from Star Wars, there's going to be one about a rogue Sith Lord who a Jedi samurai has to track down. There's going to be one that I think looks amazing about a droid who wants to be a Jedi, which I think is the cutest thing ever. If you've watched this trailer at all, the art style is tremendous. And I should say styles because it's, you know, nine different studios, but everything looks phenomenal about this. Like, I know there's some people who are complaining that, oh, it's not canon or, oh, everything looks too different from what Star Wars is. And I I love canon. I am a massive canon jokey when it comes to Star Wars. But I I do kind of wish, like, I sympathize with Legends fans a little bit about having that area of Star Wars that isn't just, you know, tied to everything. I don't know how much of an impact this is going to be on the larger Star Wars franchise. This might just be a one-off, but I think it's going to be a very cool-looking one-off.
2: Uh, we want to introduce a new segment. Last week, we talked directorial debuts, starting with Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. Uh, this week, we're introducing something new. We're going to be talking about the anniversaries that are coming up or that are being celebrated this year. We are celebrating Snakes on a Plane with their 15th anniversary this year. Matilda celebrating its 25th anniversary. Stand By Me celebrating their 35th anniversary, The Fly celebrating the 35th anniversary as well. And Barton Fink with the 30th anniversary. Um, which of these stand out? Which of these are particularly special to either of us? Um, Sam, why don't you go ahead and tell us like, which of these you um, are appreciating for their anniversary this year?
1: Yeah, so then for me, it's honestly stand by me. And it's four ways that some people might not really think about. Uh, on why it stands out to me. Um, but I, I really appreciated the movie. I mean, there's something universal about having friends as a kid and going on all these different adventures. And, you know, like for me, that was a movie that I always appreciated and appreciated more so as I saw it again, as an adult, Stand By Me also had really a big, significant part in my life because of the Pokemon games. Um, it, it's a little it's a little cool Easter egg, but if you were to click on the TV in the game, uh, in I believe it's in Pokemon Red and Blue, but someone could feel free to correct me on that. You click on the TV and it says that there are four friends on a train track together, and it's actually a reference to Stand By Me. And so I always thought that was kind of cool, and it just has this historical significance and just nostalgic significance for so many different people. And um, yeah, you really can't go wrong with friendships and friends for life. So that's why that one is my favorite out of all the anniversaries we're celebrating.
0: Matilda has a very special place in my heart. And part of me doesn't want to say that because I've kind of, again, sworn off a little bit of Roald doll stuff after you know, everything has come out about him. But I can't say no to Matilda. Matilda is sweet and wonderful. And Danny DeVito knew exactly how to direct that movie it's it's kind of scary how good he is directing that because he has such a firm grasp of how kids work in that and how adults are portrayed to kids at that age whether good or bad and how exaggerated that is like i love his approach to that again mara wilson is you know an absolute queen when it comes to you know 90s kid movies like this and she's tremendous in it uh so yeah i i love that movie to death stand by me i have not seen nearly as often uh, but it does actually tie back into last week because it's not a debut, but it was one of Rob Reiner's first movies. You know, he had just done Spinal Tap. He had just done a couple other things. And this was kind of his, you know, big breakout moment after that. And for good reason. Like, it's fantastic. Like, the cast are so well-rounded. The story brings so much weight and humanity to these uh, to these kid characters. And I, you know, I really appreciate it. I haven't seen it in a while, but I would love to revisit it at some point. And then uh, Snake's on a Plane. You know, I remember hearing about it as a kid and thinking, this sounds really dumb. And even now, I'm like, this sounds really dumb. And I've seen the movie. Um, it, again, it, it does what it says on the box. And I can't fault it for that, even though I would like to fault it for how stupid it is. Um, <laughs> as far as Barton Fink goes, I haven't seen it. I, I'm woefully unaware of a lot of Cohen Brothers' filmography. I have to rectify that someday. And The Fly, again, I'm not a horror guy. Again, I'm not a horror guy. I respect what Cronenberg has been able to do as a filmmaker. I know that Jeff Goldblum, that was kind of one of his big breakout roles for that. And one of the first, you know, Academy Award nods to a major horror project. So have to respect it. You know, maybe I'll watch it eventually, but definitely Matilda is the one that stands out.
2: I just want to mention that uh, I've seen a lot of uh, references to the, uh, the body horror aspect of the fly. And because of um, celebrating its 35th anniversary, um, of course, a lot of that was, or I think all of it was, was practical effects. And so it's reminiscent of like um, the practical effects that I think of when I think of the thing, or when I think of uh, the transformation, transformation scene in um, American werewolf in London. Um, And so uh i actually want to return and watch the fly because of course it it also stars just jeff goldblum big marvel fan i love him and thor ragnarok um so i i want to go watch that I, i call myself a horror fan but you know what why don't i pay my dues and i need to go watch that the fly so that way when it comes up in discussion i can know why that film stands out for all that it did um i'm i know i'm going in there with the expectation that it's a far out film. Like by the end of the movie, I'm expecting to see The Fly and we'll have to see how Jeff Goldblum, um, where his characterization goes for that. Um, Stand By Me and Matilda were classics for me growing up. Uh, more so Matilda. I think I just... Um, I was always just more of a fan of the witchy nature of that. uh, The fantastical, they played that school, like it was a dungeon. And I loved every, every part of it. I loved um, seeing one of the characters be flown out the window and going, Oh my gosh, only for her to land in like a meadow of flowers. And then it becomes like, Oh, like soft and soft and uh, bubbly. And um, that's why I appreciate Matilda. It's definitely based in love, um, family love and even found family. Um, Danny DeVito is Amazing! I'm surprised that I was introduced to him so young because that was a character who I think I always knew of growing up. Um, I didn't fully appreciate until I think I watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, Learning that he was a director just makes me appreciate him all the more. Um, So the standouts for me, Matilda, 25th anniversary, and then um, The Fly, I want to go and watch.
0: I I was going to say, special shout out to Pam Ferris, who I think is, again, one of the underappreciated film
2: villainesses of the last 20 or so years. Uh, Some of the reviews that we mentioned today, uh, myself on the Odyssey Online, I will be wrapping my reviews for both The Protege and The Night House, and you'll have that available um, on the Odyssey Online. Um, Sam, why don't you go ahead and talk about the reviews you have?
1: So upcoming, I actually have Shang-Chi, which I am so excited about, and uh, I'm sure we'll all be talking about that soon in future episodes. But um, I have that review coming up also with Odyssey Online. And so if you want to find me, I am on Twitter at... S underscore Incovia, which is my, my last name, and we'll include it somewhere in descriptions um, with this podcast as well. You could see all the shenanigans I'm up to in the movie world.
2: Brandon?
0: Uh, yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie king 45 Again, follow my articles on Odyssey as well. I don't have any lined up for this week, so just check out on social media.
2: And last thing, uh, forgot to mention, I did review Free Guy. That's about a week old. But if you're still catching up to that movie, we all um, give it two thumbs up. So make sure you make your way out to theaters, um, and then send us send us a word. Let us know what you think. Um, my Twitter is jsy Noah um, Noah like the knowledge. And then our Odyssey online content uh, for the next week. So find us on Twitter. We will have a social media page where we can start linking some of our um, our own content that we're working on, as well as any show mentions or any mentioning in the shows that we feel is significant. And until next time, thank you for joining us on Plot Devices.